Hello, and welcome to the All Saints Podcast. I'm Hugh Cole. Thank you for joining me for a new episode of our ongoing series, Calling. Today, for our fifth episode, we're going to switch gears a little bit and speak to a Catholic priest and university professor in Chicago, Illinois, Father Chris Robinson. Father Chris and I spoke about his calling, his personal faith journey, and his many years of journaling. Plus, we had the added benefit of speaking in January, just after the inauguration of our first Catholic president in over 60 years. I hope you enjoy. Well, Father Chris, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Thank you, Hugh. Glad to be here. I'd love to start off by just asking you where you were in your life when you first felt called to the ministry. In my life, uh, which was kind of a non-normative life in terms of my faith and religion, I think, you know, as a child, I grew up on the Gulf Coast of Texas. Uh, My dad's an atheist and my mom converted to Catholicism. And so she kind of was uber Catholic when we were tiny kids. And we went to Catholic school uh, up until eighth grade. So I think Occasionally, the idea was sort of floated there, but by the time I was in third or fourth grade, my mom fell out of interest with the Catholic Church because it had changed so much during the Second Vatican Council. So while we went to Catholic school, my family never went to church together. We didn't pray together. Um, So I had a cultural Catholic background up until eighth grade, but then I also had my dad's uh, critical thinking side. So the idea was there because it was just part of going to Catholic school. I probably didn't take it seriously or really see it as a life option until my sophomore year in college. And it's interesting. You're the second person I've spoken with just in this, in these conversations um, that has mentioned that they had a father who was uh, a non-believer and a mother who was a very strong believer. I actually grew up in a very similar household to that. Is that a coincidence? Is there any magic to that, to the fact that growing up in that kind of environment leads you in a certain direction? That's a really good question. You know, um, I do know this, uh, when I was in the seminary training to be a priest in the 1980s, there was a national study out of Washington, DC for the center for the applied research and the apostolate. And they were looking into your question about what kind of background uh, do a lot of people in who are studying for ministry come from. And I got a call back a couple of times because they were starting to pick up on a tiny little trend of people like myself who came from a non-traditional background. Because up until about the 1980s, most Roman Catholic clergy came from very homogenous, very uh, Everyone was Catholic, all the grandparents were Catholic, all, and they were beginning to see a difference in the trends. And uh, my guess, Hugh, now is that because religion across the board is such a personal choice, that I certainly know from my own classmates and people that I work with, many come from very similar backgrounds where there is some Catholic influence, but again, not the monolithic or homogenous. Uh, like single faith tradition that we used to have. 
And it's interesting, the, um, the presence of that critical thinking, logically, you would say that it would be, it would add another hurdle to your development of your faith. But I wonder if in your experience, it's quite the opposite where the critical thinking actually allows you to explore your faith more deeply. I, I 100% the latter. So for example, well, two things that I think are important. My mom and dad were a team. I mean, they, they, were, they were so good with each other and for each other. So they had a very deep mutual respect for where each other was coming from. So even though my mom uh, sort of was turned off that the Catholic Church changed so much, by the end of her life, she had pretty much reconciled and sort of drifted back in. My dad has always been supportive of asking the big questions while he has his own conclusions, you know. So that being said, as I got into college, and again, it was the 1980s, uh, we had just gone through the Iranian crisis. So Islam was suddenly being talked about. Um, there were a lot of Muslims on campus because I grew up in Houston, a lot with the oil industry. So there were a lot of conversations, again, about religion in a new way. The idea of a theocracy in a modern world seems so bizarre. Social justice issues, uh, the economic situation of the 80s, then HIV AIDS came onto the scene, and um, there was also the civil war with El Salvador. So there are all kinds of political issues and social issues. and my personal experience, it's not the same for everybody, was the Catholic Church was actually responding to these issues. So, you know, you had Oscar Romero, who Pope Francis recently made a saint in El Salvador. There was the Damian Ministries, which welcomed uh, people suffering with HIV and AIDS. The Daughters of Charity, which are the female side of my order, uh, were the first hospital system in the U.S that completely welcomed people who were HIV positive without any discrimination. So it was interesting for me, it was the intellectual approach, but it was also the approach to the humanity. Um, it was very interesting. I once asked somebody why, you know, some religious traditions only help their own. Why is it that so much of what we're doing is indiscriminate? And it was a daughter of charity, a sister, and she laughed and she said, we're doing it not because they're Catholic, we're doing it because we're Catholic. And that really stuck with me in the sense of my dad's thing with religion is never impose an absolute truth on anybody, whether it be the absolute truth of atheism or anti-theism or the absolute truth of God. Instead, just treat each person in front of you as the person in front of you and respond. So I was drawn to the intellectual tradition. Uh, I, I'm a philosophy major, and then I went into some uh, pop culture studies, but also phenomenology from uh, philosophical studies, theology. I loved the intellectual tradition of the Abrahamic traditions, and then I loved the application. It's uh, the humanism that's behind it all. Again, this is not always what you see, you know, in TV or in movies, but behind the scenes, it's motivated by humanism. And I think that bridges my dad's and my mom's approach to what they believe. As a sophomore in college, was it a bolt of lightning that struck that 
when you realized that it was time or was it more of a of a process wouldn't that have been nice <laughs> wouldn't that have been nice in some ways and i wrote this in my journal i was approaching uh i had been in the seminary for probably about nine years it usually takes nine or ten years for a religious order priest to reach ordination and i was struggling but i, I wasn't having doubts but i was frustrated by bureaucracy and all sorts of things. And I quoted the Old Testament prophet, uh, you seduced me, O Lord, and I allowed myself to be seduced. So when I was looking back over my discernment process, I kind of began to see it was a kind of seduction. So I was in college, I was on a full scholarship for journalism. My hope had been to be a print and then later some sort of media person. Uh, and I was also working full-time at Bloomingdale's. And back in those days, stores were closed on Sunday. Uh, I lived about 15 minutes from Galveston Island. A bunch of us from work were going to go and just hang out at the beach all day because everything was closed. But my friends, who were pretty wild, you know, they were wild and crazy, a lot of fun. And they wanted to go to church before we went to the beach. And they had never brought this up before. I guess we had gotten to be good enough friends that they thought we could go to church. And Hugh, it was Texas. I mean, this could have been Baptist, it could have been Methodist, but it actually ended up being the Catholic church where I had gone to elementary school. And here I am a sophomore in college. The church itself was very progressive, um, very social justice. The music was great. The preaching was relevant. Um, the majority of people there were college age people. Um, and I, I was seduced. I thought this is, this is really, and it was a tradition that I had recognized from being in Catholic school. So I got more and more involved until a priest of my order, I'm an order of St. Vincent de Paul, um, and a Vincentian priest asked me if I'd ever thought about being a priest. Sophomore year, I don't know if you know this, sophomore year is when most college students drop out of college because it's no longer new, but you're not close to graduation. So I was actually in a place where I was transferable. So I told the priest, okay, I'll give this one year. And I kept doing that for about nine years until they said, you got to make a decision. <laughs> you can't go on like this. So while it wasn't a bolt of lightning, it was more of what, I, again, I would call a seduction. Um, there were aha moments along the way. I spent a year working in the housing projects of New Orleans with 13 others of my order. Um, very difficult. We lived across the alley from Sister Helen Prejean, and she was just at that time getting involved with her death penalty work. And it was incredible poverty. Um, there was, there were drugs on the streets, there was gun violence. And I remember at that point, if I can live here, be with people like this and be present to it and be witness to it, then I could probably do this with my life. And so that was about as close to a bolt of lightning, but for the most part, it's been a slow, just when I start to think, I don't know, then God seduces me again. <laughs> I'm certain that there were people along the way, as you as you say, that sort of relit the fire, I guess. Do any one or two of those people stand out? Absolutely, without a doubt. And one I mentioned, Sister Helen Prejean, 
um, she's still a good friend. And um, she comes to our university, DePaul University, uh, when in the normal times, because uh, she has such a close connection with our community. And Sister Helen is, is a walking saint. And she would slap me upside the head for saying that, because <laughs> she's also a very humble person. Uh, they made the film Dead Man Walking about Sister Helen. And I was just honored and through Providence, I got to work with her early on. And uh, she's been very important in my life. But to, to your question, I've also had negative examples. And, uh, and that seems like such an odd approach, but I guess, again, it's sort of critical thinking. So for example, as a Roman Catholic priest, I certainly have been exposed to the fallout from the clergy sexual abuse, uh, clericalism, uh, people who have been ordained, who are in it for power rather than service. Um, I've encountered that all along the way. And it's interesting because, uh, again, kind of to quote one of the Psalms, use them, Lord, to show me your way kind of thing because I learned from them what not to be. And, and again, I'm not judging. I'm not holding it against people, especially broken people. On the other hand, trying to follow where the spirit leads. Sometimes it's through the positive, like a sister Helen, and then sometimes it's through the negative as well. You mentioned journaling earlier, and then you, uh, just a second ago, you mentioned following the spirit. Do you continue to journal or are there other ways that you allow the spirit to speak to you on a daily basis to help guide you down your path? Yes. And yes, uh, I started journaling when I was 11 years old. Uh, our class at school had read a, a book called Harriet the Spy and Harriet had a spiral notebook and would go around basically spying on people and writing about them. And I found it to be so interesting. So as an 11 year old, I bought a spiral notebook at Walgreens and a pencil, and I just started writing. And, uh, and that of course led me to my interest in journalism later. But I, I, I uh, follow a fairly structured journal method now called the Intensive Journal, uh, which was developed by Dr. Ira Progoff. It uh, brings a lot of order to journaling, different parts of life. Uh, I take a workshop on the journal probably once a year. And, uh, it, and I try to journal every day and, uh, because it really does help externalize my thoughts. I don't censor my journals, you know. Um, it's in my will that they should be destroyed because I don't censor my journals. But externalizing helps me see the second part where is the spirit? Where is the presence of God? Uh, if I'm writing about maybe someone I encountered, if I'm writing about a student or a student's work at the university where I teach, sometimes I hear or see the, the spirit. Um, if I'm having a dry period, uh, what the mystics call a time of desolation in my prayer, writing about that can sometimes be helpful when I'm back in the oasis i can look back and revisit desolation and remember what it feels like so the holy spirit is not going to be chained i mean you know as i often tell people the holy spirit is going to have her way no matter what so 
the spirit continues to often be at work, especially when I least expect it. Yeah. As you were going through your process of discernment and the critical thinking that we've discussed, you're a very cerebral, thoughtful person. I wonder if there's a dominant emotion that comes along with your, as you think about your faith and as you think about how you've grown in your faith. I think, again, it would be sometimes mixed. Uh, as you were asking the question, and this is going to sound very lofty, but hopefully I can bring it down to earth. As you were asking your question, is there a certain emotion? I had a flashback to a great opportunity I had uh, with the Paul students to go to Spain and walk part of the Camino de Santiago. And I went a week early in order to have some downtime before the students arrived. And there was a place where I was crossing from what's called the Meseta, kind of a plain that takes you then up into the hills and there was still snow on top of some of the mountains. And I was walking into that, in that direction and reached the place where then I could look back and just look at the long <clears throat> expanse of the flat. It was just awe. It was a feeling of absolute awe that caught me off guard because it was a lot of work. It was a hard hiking day. And I would say, Hugh, a lot of times my emotion, sometimes it's inspired by people sometimes by the natural beauty that I just mentioned. Sometimes it really is by an idea. You know, I'll, I'll just sit back and think that is an extraordinary, beautiful idea. Um, I was putting together, for example, a lecture on the philosopher Emmanuel Levinas, who uh, he was a, a, a French soldier who was Jewish, who was incarcerated during the Second World War as an officer, so he wasn't in the labor camps, so he survived. And he wrote this incredible philosophy about when we encounter the other. And he talks about encountering the face of another. And he said, if you encounter another and just see them as that student or that white person or that black person or that woman or that man, that label murders the person in front of you because you're not allowing them to be huge. And he said that is the only way he could understand how could the atrocities of the, the, the camps have taken place. It was because the Nazis, which is a label, encountered the Jews, which is a label. I thought that was just beautiful. I felt this upwelling of emotion. I also felt intimidated. I thought, now when I go outside, am I going to go crazy? Not, <laughs> not labeling people, you know. But there's a beauty to the possibilities of what ideas can bring if we allow them to wash over us. Um, so I think my emotions are awe. I think they're uh, deep love, you know, for these things. And certainly, people bring out. I mean, believe it or not, I am cerebral, but I can draw, I can cry at the drop of a hat. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know if that answered your question, but. It did. It's very helpful. And what you were speaking about uh, was even more poignant in a world where a lot of us are working very hard to try and strip away and get to a much deeper relationship with the true person. But we're doing it in a world where we can't be face to face with one another so it takes on a bit of a different mentality or a different meaning in that kind of world, doesn't it? 
Oh, very much so, very much so. And uh, I think it's going to be super interesting when we do reach another side, just how much people are going to appreciate being able to see each other again, especially even like without our, our need to mask, which right now we have to do to protect each other. But what a great day it'll be when we don't need that. And like you said, we can actually see each other again um, without filters and without a screen. You've mentioned your students a couple time at times at DePaul. I imagine as a professor, and I know you've been a teacher there for a number of years, that you've had students come to you who are in the process, either the beginning, middle, or end of a process of discernment or a process of being called towards something. How do you advise them in that moment? That's a really great question. And, and it almost feels, kind of, I mean, talk about Providence. Yesterday, I spent two hours with a student uh, talking about discernment. Uh, they graduated in, the, in fall. And they're trying to discern, do I go to law school? Do I go into a master's program for public policy? Uh, do I go in to teach for America? What should I do? So it's funny you should ask that question because it's right in the front of my brain. The number one thing I, I recommend for any student or anyone who is in some sort of discernment is to pay very, very close attention to will it bring you joy? Will it bring you happiness? Especially because of the fields that I work in, uh, public service, uh, community service, advocacy, uh, certainly religious motivation. People want to do something to make the world a better place. And that's noble. But any lawyer can tell you, if they get an intern, a summer intern who says, I wanna be a lawyer to help people, the first thing that lawyer usually does is say, drop out now while you can. I will occasionally have people come and say, well, I'm thinking about ministry. I'm thinking about maybe going into lay ministry or ordination because I want to help people. I always tell them, and this reminds me of your question, Hugh, about the Holy Spirit. I always tell them the church doesn't need more priests. The church doesn't need more ministers. The church only needs God, and this is God's project. God will take care of things. Are you going to be happy doing these things? Because if you're not happy, it's you're going to it, you're going to build resentment. And if you're doing it out of loyalty or obligation, or God help us, some kind of sacrifice, it's just going to turn out badly. Um, so the number one thing I ask people to do, especially again, if they journal, is spend time locating where is the joy in what you're thinking about and go with that. Because without joy, you're not going to have the presence of God and things are going to go badly. In the, uh, in the few minutes we have left, I'm doing the math here in my head. And if I'm right, you were born right after John Kennedy was, was president. And he was obviously the first Catholic president that we had. I wonder if I could ask how you were feeling yesterday as a Catholic when the second Catholic president that we've ever had was sworn in to office. Great question. Actually, I'll be really honest with you. I was born in 61. So uh, 
I was about three years old, I guess, when John F. Kennedy was assassinated. So it's like I wasn't born because I was still in diapers. <laughs> I have to tell you, and of course, people who know me well, texts are just pinging my phone yesterday like crazy when Biden quoted St. Augustine, because I often say, now listen to this, St. Augustine will be helpful to you someday. And so, of course, even students, they're, they're emailing me like, you know, he just mentioned St. Augustine, you know, and I, I thought to myself, okay, we definitely have a Catholic priest, uh, a Catholic president who, uh, who knows his background. I was really pleased because, uh, in fact, this may be really interesting to you, Hugh. Yesterday uh, in the evening, uh, evening edition of NPR, they interviewed the, the priest. His name went right on my head, a very famous Jesuit priest who works for America Magazine. And they interviewed him about this very question. And Biden is going to be, bring Catholic social teaching to his presidency, care for the poor, education, healthcare, opening up hearts to immigrants. So when it comes to having a Catholic president, his flavor of Catholicism is rooted in what we call Catholic social teaching, which is looking out for the, the poor and the disadvantaged. I'm looking very quickly. I want to see if I can find the, the quote that he, uh, that he said. You don't remember it off the top of your head, do you? I can paraphrase it. Basically, people will find community around what unites them and they will build community around what unites them. St. Augustine was basically talking about the city of God. And if God unites, if God is your motivation, people for whom God is central will find each other. They will unite around that common relationship or common belief. Or if care for the poor or care for the immigrant, or in, in what Biden was trying to say, care for healing and rebuilding our nation, that will unite us. Thank you again to Father Christopher Robinson for spending some time with me to talk about his calling. I hope you'll join us next week when I speak with retired Episcopal priest, the Reverend Ann Cobb. Until then, if you'd like to subscribe, rate, or review the podcast, you can do so in your favorite podcast app. Have a great week and God bless.